1: Hello, this
2: is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Lindsay Kingston, who is the author of the Oxford University Press book, Fully Human Personhood, Citizenship, and Rights. This is a fascinating and complex study of our general understanding of what it means to be a citizen. And also, how that connects to our concepts of states, nation states in particular, um, and when individuals do not have a clear connection to a nation state. But I'm going to let Lindsay talk about that some more. Um, but first, let me introduce Lindsay Kingston, author of Fully Human. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast today.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Lily.
2: It is my pleasure. My first question for you is to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project.
0: Sure. Well, it's actually been a long time coming. I'm an interdisciplinary social scientist, and I'm primarily a human rights researcher. And I would say that the beginning of this project actually started for me when I was still a graduate student. I was spending some time in northern Thailand in 2005 and I had originally gone because I wanted to learn more about human trafficking and issues of human security. So I found myself living up in Sai, Thailand, which is right on the border of you know, it's the Burmese Thai border, and um, very quickly started talking to people who had stories that were very shocking to me. These were people who were members of various hill tribes in northern Thailand, and did not have legal nationality to Thailand, but they also didn't have citizenship anywhere else. They were stateless. And by interacting with these folks on a regular basis, I came to realize just how um, pervasive this problem was, but also just how much it affects your everyday life. So people told me stories about being unable to work legally, being unable to send their children to public school, being unable to go to the doctor because they couldn't access the Thai subsidized healthcare system if they weren't citizens. And of course, this led to vulnerabilities to things like human trafficking into the sex trade, into the fishing industry, all sorts of of different jobs that uh, most people didn't want to undertake because they were dangerous. Um, But also uh, of things related to discrimination. Um, Maybe for example, you had to worry about being deported to a country you had never been to before. Maybe it was being afraid that the police were going to come um, and not only deny you any sort of protection, um, but also maybe they were the ones you needed protecting from. And so I was shocked by this. I think A lot of people, especially those of us living in the United States where we have birthright citizenship, just naturally assume that everyone has citizenship somewhere. But of course, that is not the truth. And for about 10 million people around the world, people don't have citizenship to any state. So they're stateless. And this is a violation of international human rights law. So again, I was in graduate school at the time, and at first I figured, well, you know, I'm a graduate student, I just hadn't heard of this, and my world is rocked by this information, and I wanna learn more. So I came back to the United States and I did what academics do, I went to the library. I started looking for books and journal articles. And when that didn't really work out, I started making phone calls. I started calling NGOs and state offices um, and really came to realize that not very many people were looking at the issue of statelessness. Uh, In fact, uh, many people told me that this was a forgotten human rights issue and this just wasn't a priority for most governments and NGOs. So I wrote my master's thesis on this issue in Thailand and by the time I got to graduate school for my PhD at Syracuse University, I had taken a much more global focus. My dissertation was on issue emergence and why NGOs take up the issues they do out of all the horrible human rights issues in the world you can take up and why statelessness was often not a contender for their agendas. So This was the starting point for me, Uh, but really I think once statelessness was on my radar, I began to see a lot of protection gaps that I would have otherwise missed. Or if not missed, I would have at least interpreted much differently. And so uh, in the book, what I basically argue is that we have built some really serious protection gaps into the international system and into the international human rights regime. Uh, we have focused so heavily on state duty bearers for protecting human rights and state citizenship for recognizing who's worthy or who counts that we've created what I call hierarchies of personhood. So if you look at the Universal Declaration of human rights and international human rights law, that all tells us human rights are universal and inalienable. Everyone has them by virtue of being human, and nothing we can do or say or be is supposed to take them away. But we all know that that is not how things often play out in real life. Some people are able to enjoy their human rights much more easily than others. And so these hierarchies help us to really explain uh, to an extent of why that happens. So I argue that some people are recognized as being worthy of rights or more more basically fully human as the title suggests than others. Uh, So um, what started as as really scholarship on statelessness has expanded um, in a lot of different directions that I think are very much interconnected. In the book, I talk about statelessness as a sort of a canary in a coal mine, so to speak. It's the starkest example of what happens when people have no relationship to a state government and very you know, grim terms often, what happens to your human rights. But we can also look, as I do in the book, at, at instances of say forced displacement, irregular migration, nomadic peoples, indigenous nations, and also some marginalized communities and countries like the United States, and talk about how certain groups are able to enjoy and advocate for their human rights more than others, and why that is. So the book I think is really a call for us to reevaluate how we recognize claimants of rights. Um and and really to look inward at the international system and this the system of human rights that I think is well-intentioned, but is fundamentally flawed in a lot of ways.
2: And and I, I certainly wanted to sort of move into that space because the, the book is so well crafted and and clearly written and argued in terms of thinking about as you say, where did this problem come from and why? Why is it here with us? Um, and, and, you know, the the intention of the Declaration of Human Rights, um, as you note, sort of has an idealized kind of notion to it. Um, but that ultimately what you found in your research is that there are, as you say, these kind of protection gaps that... Um, that have to do also with the establishment of nation states or the functioning of nation states, can you talk a little bit about these you know that what you sort of describe in the book through looking at the declaration of human rights um, the protection gaps because they are the responsibilities or they become the responsibilities of nation-states themselves. Sure.
0: Well, I think the the person who is most commonly cited in conversations about statelessness is the political theorist Hannah Arendt, who, of course, was a stateless refugee herself following the world wars. And she was... The first, I think, to really raise the alarm and say, "Hey, listen," uh, you know, the UDHR and this human rights regime have a lot of good ideas, but we really are relying on state governments to advocate for people and to protect rights and to basically be the good guy. And sometimes states aren't the good guy. Uh, in my book, I talk about functioning citizenship. So, you know, often when we talk about citizenship, we're talking about legal status, we're talking about things that can be say, proven with a passport, for example. But I argue that is just one aspect of citizenship and so what we really have to think about is a relationship between a person and a state. You know, if you go back to social contract thinkers, for example, they talk about this kind of mutually beneficial relationship. And so I'm, I'm tapping into that school of thought to an extent. But the idea is that, yes, you have to have that mutually beneficial relationship, um, but you also have to kind of think about populations that uh, don't fit in our traditional conception of citizen and state, such as, you know, again, I talk about nomadic peoples and indigenous nations in the book, but I think Overwhelmingly, one of the biggest pitfalls of our our current approach is that we assume that these instances of breakdowns in this relationship, these cases where people don't have functioning citizenship to a state, we assume that that is an exception to the norm, that it's temporary, that it's an emergency situation or a crisis, when in reality, that is the norm of the international system, Things like statelessness and forced displacement and minority populations have always been. And will continue to be. And so rather than trying to, quote unquote, solve these crises, what we need to be kind of thinking about is how we can provide protection and also full recognition in ways that respect human dignity, um, understanding that, you know, not everything is going to fit into these neat little packages where people can be linked up very perfectly to their state duty bearer.
2: And you also talk about the different sort of relationships that individuals have with regard to the concept of citizenship, that there's emotional and moral components to it oftentimes, um, because it is relational, that the state has a relationship to the individual citizen, um, if they are citizen or not citizen. Um, and that the, the, there's a variety of ways of thinking about um, how that relationship exists. Um, and I think one of the things that your book does such a nice job of explaining is, like, we don't often think about that. As you say, legal citizenship, here's my passport. I am a citizen of this country. Um, but citizenship itself is not oftentimes functioning in that manner. Can you talk a little bit about that in context of your research?
0: Sure. Well, you know, early in the book, one of the things that I point out is that we spend a lot of time as scholars, but also as just members of our own political communities, we spend a lot of time talking and debating, talking about and debating citizenship. But we're often using this, this term to mean all sorts of different things. And so I Part of the reason that debates about citizenship become so heated and emotional, politically fraught is because we're often comparing apples to oranges in a lot of cases. So in the book, I talk about the ways that we approach citizenship as a right, as an identity, and also as a commodity. So let me give you a few examples of that. First, citizenship as a right. You know, we can look at international law, including two statelessness conventions, and we can see that the international community recognizes the right to a nationality. And for a lot of the reasons I talked about earlier, if you don't have a state duty bearer, you're vulnerable to all sorts of horrible things. Um, And so on one hand, uh, we're, we're seeing growing recognition of this. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees, for example, launched a 10-year global campaign to eliminate statelessness in 2014. And it's an uphill battle, right? Uh, They are very much focusing on statelessness, though, from a legalistic perspective. The idea that if somebody is issued that piece of paper saying, congratulations, you're a citizen, uh, we can check those people off the list and say, mission accomplished there. Um, and, and, you know, and that is the approach for a lot of states where, you know, maybe it's about assuring that people have birth documentation, birth registration. Maybe it's about getting ID cards for po- for po- folks. Uh, that is, of course, very important. At the same time, though, a little side note, I'd say people are stateless for a reason, Sure, sometimes there are bureaucratic oversights that leave some people without nationality, and we can remedy that hopefully pretty easily. But most people who are stateless are stateless because they were already part of a marginalized minority. And by denying them citizenship, that was one to discriminate against them, but also a way to send a very clear message, you are not part of this polity. So giving them that piece of paper is not going to suddenly, you know, wave a magic wand and make them recognized and and, uh, fully included in that political community. But by talking about citizenship as a right and statelessness as a human rights violation, we're sending the message that everyone deserves nationality, which is easier said than done. So if we talk about citizenship as an identity, which is that second category, that's where things get really emotional. Um, you know, there's a lot of conversation right now happening in the European Union, for example, about the integration of refugees. I've seen a lot of, of work being written on, you know, can can a Syrian refugee ever feel completely British, for example, or ever be fully German? So that raises the question of, well, what do you mean by that? How do you feel German? How do you be British? So clearly we're talking about something more than that piece of paper saying that you've become a naturalized citizen. So we're, people more and more you know, are just assuming that citizenship denotes a common history, traditions, maybe language, all sorts of things. And those are things you can't necessarily earn. You either have them or you don't. And so, in certain ways, that becomes very exclusionary because. You know, you know, as as some scholars have said, we have kind of a birthright lottery system happening here, um, as Ayelet Shakar says. Uh, So so what does that mean for citizenship as a right if it's something you kind of have to be born into to ever really fully be part of? Um, And lastly, we have citizenship as a commodity, which makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. Um, This is a perspective where citizenship, especially citizenship or legal nationality to a very wealthy and powerful country has a lot of benefits. There's a lot of perks to having a U.S. or British passport, for example, freedom of movement, um, the ability to work legally, the ability to get an education at some very good institutions of higher ed. And so there are companies in the world that make it their business to negotiate second or even third legal nationalities for wealthy people so that they can do business with ease and travel with ease. Uh, Malta, for example, got into trouble a while back for um, issuing Maltese citizenship to people who were willing to um, make a pretty hefty financial investment in the country. And so the rest of the EU uh, raised the red flag and said, hey, wait a minute, you're basically selling EU citizenship here. This is not something that we're comfortable with. This is not acceptable. Um, So again, we have citizenship as a right identity and commodity, and these things clash with each other all of the time. So we're talking about the same thing and yet totally different things all at once.
2: And I mean, I think that's one of the really uh, interesting and really well sort of developed parts of your book is thinking through these clashing components of citizenship that sort of are also existing simultaneously. And and to some degree, they also are conceptually difficult for, you know, people who are sitting here like me with my U.S. citizenship saying, huh, that's an interesting way of considering, you know, sort of the commodification of citizenship. Can you sell citizenship? Well, of course you can, because people have been doing it for ages, um but you know does that disturb my patriotism and my nationalism um as it were uh so i wanted to ask you to sort of think about or 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 bring forward some of the sort of ways that you discuss a lot of these aspects inside the book um and you do you know sort of lay out in, in different parts of the book um four sections uh the the difficulty and understanding sort of the changing value of citizenship. And so you sort of lay out the theory. um, And can you take us through some of the theory that you do lay out early in the book before we dive into some of the examples that you provide in the rest of the book? (laughs) Sure.
0: Well, you know, I think this is always tricky territory because people have been writing about citizenship for a very long time. And again, that idea has really changed over the years, what exactly we mean by citizenship and what we mean by the nation. Um, but what I, you know, one of the things I think is really fascinating as you look at kind of the history of citizenship, and how that norm has changed, um, kind of linking it back to statelessness for a moment, is that for most of human history, uh, this conversation was very much just a theoretical one. This wasn't something people had to worry about too much on an everyday lived experience sort of basis. And so, you know, we can go back and think about how the Greeks thought about citizenship and all of that good stuff. Uh, but really, if I, if I go back to Northern Thailand and I talk to people who live in that mountainous region, uh, James C. Scott talked about in his couple of his fabulous books. Um, you know, those uplands were kind of a, a hidden territory that was far away from the eye of the state, and so those folks didn't really care if they had passports. It didn't matter for them. They would travel across borders without any sort of problem. They didn't have to worry about um, getting caught up in any sort of uh, border patrols or state security initiatives or any of that. Now, suddenly, because of globalization and the the rise of the security regime, uh, citizenship is very important. It's a prerequisite for attaining all sorts of other human rights. And so where if I can go back 100 years to the uplands of Southeast Asia, I would meet a lot of people that didn't give much thought to if they were national to Thailand or whatever other country. But now that is A central challenge to their fundamental rights. That determines whether they can go to a doctor, whether their kids can learn to read. And that is, uh, you know, that's a huge shift in a very short amount of time if we're thinking about the scope of human history. Um, I do talk in my book a lot about things like social citizenship. I talk about, um, you know, Giorgio Agamben and Hannah Arendt and their thoughts about um, vulnerabilities in the face of. the inability to access rights. Agamben talks about bare life, for example, and and especially in relation to the refugee camp and and to people who are displaced and away from any sort of uh, state who is accountable for their well-being. Um, But I think that generally, we're trying to situate that in a broader conversation um, between theory and much more Practical um, considerations when it comes to, uh, you know, nationality laws. When it comes to UNHCR policy. When it comes to thinking about uh, how to respond to things like refugee flows around the world. So, I hope I'm answering your question. But yes, you
2: are. There's a lot in the no. theory
0: section. I don't want to get too bogged down,
2: but um, that's fine. That's fine. I just wanted, you know, to provide a bit of an overview of how you are thinking about the theory that's framing a lot of your analysis and the, as I said, the many examples, um, and to some degree, I guess, case studies that you explore throughout the rest of the book. Um, so I'd like to take you through part two, uh, the newcomers and non-citizens, where you talk about displacement and, and statelessness, um, and to some degree, the sort of the difficulty that we now face because of, as you note, globalization, um, security issues, um, the contemporary border, uh, and so forth.
0: Sure. And again, I think when when we talk about statelessness, forced displacement, and irregular migration, I think it's important to, again, stress that these have always been elements of our international system and, fortunately, are probably going to remain so in the foreseeable future. I say that because usually when we talk about these issues, um, we see uh, the media framing these things as refugee crises, for example, and emergencies along our southern border here in the U.S. And that, that is uh, not correct, to, to put it mildly. Uh, And I think using that language is really a way to kind of um, skirt around some of these uh, deeper issues, these deeper problems that really require us to think long term about the shortcomings in our system. So, as I mentioned, I think statelessness is very much uh, the starkest example of what happens when people lack functioning citizenship to a government. In the book, I talk about rights to place and purpose. And so I think these are really central. You know, if you sat down with UDHR, you could probably divide up most of those articles into either place or purpose, but um Really, I think that these are a good way of thinking about what we really mean by human dignity. And so, for example, rights to place might be uh, physical location, you know, your ability to live in a particular territory without fear of being deported or being uh, abused, but also place within a political community. So having the ability to be recognized as worthy and to be, you know, having a meaningful contribution to that society. And that relates to purpose, because you really need those rights to place in order to move on to those rights to purpose that basically give life meaning, right? And that that's different for all of us, but it could be things like your education, your career, your family, your religion, your cultural expression, the list could go on and on. But if you think about stateless people um, who are so restricted in so many ways, it's not that they don't have any sort of political agency. I don't think that's true of any any group of people in the world, um, but they're really, um, incredibly, uh, restricted and challenged when it comes to, um, living a life of human dignity. And so I, I, I try to follow a logical progression in my book, which is how I've kind of, uh, paired up some of these case studies, but I talk about forced displacement next because that is really a situation where people have broken ties with a state. Sure, there are some stateless people who are also refugees. You know, a lot of times there's overlap between these categories, although most times uh, stateless people are just really wanting to live with dignity and a space where their families may have existed for centuries. You know, for most refugees and displaced persons, we're talking about either um, fleeing from a government that's unable or unwilling to protect you or that you protecting from, um, or, uh, you, maybe you're even still stuck within that, that state, those state boundaries. Um, and so in those cases, we have the modern refugee regime, which again requires states, right? The idea is if you can no longer count on your own government to protect you, then the international community, our society of states in the UN system or neighboring states is going to step in temporarily to, um, fill that protection gap while this emergency plays out. So we go from one state duty bearer to another group of state duty bearers, again, always assuming that states are the good guys and that they're going to take on this responsibility fully. And again, that's often not the case. And then when I talk lastly about irregular human movement, you know, again, we're we're looking at the situation on the U.S.-Mexico border right now, where we have a lot of overlap happening between asylum seekers and potential refugees, as well as folks who are Technically, economic migrants, but you know we can have a debate about um, how much of that migration is really uh, voluntary, if it's uh, in the face of extreme hardship back home. Uh, but these are cases where language really matters, and we see that people are very intentionally uh, calling folks migrants or immigrants because they don't want to engage with that state responsibility under the 1951 Refugee Convention among others. And so we have all these cases of people that, you know, maybe they're state citizens somewhere, maybe they're not, uh, but that legal status is really meaningless if you can't access it. So whether you're a citizen somewhere or not, if you don't have a functioning relationship with your government, you are pretty much left out in the cold, you don't have a duty bearer, um, and the state system isn't quite sure what to do with you or, or can't handle dealing with you in large waves of people, as we're seeing in, all over the world right now with migrant flows happening in response to famine, climate change, war, discrimination, the list goes on and on.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off,
2: and, and and into that sort of discussion of, as you note, sort of irregular human movement, um, that it's it's again not something that is clearly understood or defined, uh, particularly when we see it in context of like the news media. Um, that it's you know it's it's put into the context of a caravan on our border or you know what is what is the number of people we are going to let into the country, um, whereas a lot of what your research is exploring is the fact that this is you know not just a border issue, of course, um, and I you know I found that to be super clarifying for me and thinking about, um, the question of not only immigration, but as you say, sort of human movement. Um, the next part of your book was a little surprising to me when I got to it, um, because it wasn't exactly where I thought the book would necessarily go, but then of course it made perfect sense. Um, and you talk about marginalized nations and minorities, um, and you take up you know, as you talk about them, tribal sovereignty, nomadic peoples, alternative conceptions of place, which again sort of stands the sort of concept of nation states a little bit on on our head or on its head uh, because we're so used to thinking about everybody in a nation state. And if you are from a group that is not necessarily um cleaving to a nation state then then who are you?
0: right right? Well, Lily, I'm so glad you said it makes perfect sense to you because I will admit as I was writing the book, I knew it made sense in my head and I was hoping others would get it. So I'm very relieved that people seem to be getting it um, Yeah, well so let me let me step back for a second and kind of explain how how this all came to be because I'm covering a lot of a lot of territory in this book uh, you know, in graduate school, I was in Syracuse, New York, which was just a few miles from the Onondaga Nation, which is a sovereign nation that is surrounded by the state of New York. And while I was in grad school, toward the end, uh, we had an incident where the Iroquois Nationals lacrosse team was trying to go to England to participate in the world championship. They were actually the top-ranked lacrosse team in the world at that point, and their ancestors invented the sport, so it's perhaps not a surprise. Um, And they ended up getting stuck at JFK in New York, and they couldn't board the plane because a number of them (laughs) were using tribal passports. They didn't have... they had rejected using U.S. or Canadian passports and instead had opted for tribal passports because that was their primary national identity. That was their affiliation. And people had traveled on these passports before to places like Japan, but because of increasing security measures at airports and the like, uh, this time they were blocked. And so that was one of those moments, all oh, those aha, aha moments for me anyway. Where I thought, okay, well, now we're now we're really getting to the heart of, of what we mean by citizenship and nation, because we have uh, nations like the Onondaga that the U.S. government recognizes as right, a,
2: exactly
0: right. We have treaties like with with a variety of indigenous nations where we treat them as, you know, these are nation to nation agreements, but then we're saying, but your your passports don't count. <laughs> I've also worked with, you know, ghost tribes. There's all sorts of tribes that, for whatever reason, are not recognized as indigenous nations by the U.S. federal government. And if you're not recognized by the U.S. government, you can't access a variety of special rights and protections as indigenous peoples. So what a strange thing we have going here where the colonizing state has to recognize you as being Colonized and oppressed, right? It's like this this weird chicken and the egg circular thing here going on. So, um, kind of this was always in the back of my head as I was thinking about functioning citizenship and how we recognize people as as worthy claimants of rights. And so, um, you know, a lot of my writing. Focused very much on things like passports, things like legal status, things like, you know, refugee protection. But more and more, I started to think, you know, these are all related. So even though we might not normally think about statelessness and refugees and nomadic peoples in the same scholarly conversation, um, what I'm hoping to show in the book that is that a lot of these challenges really, when we dig down deep, are stemming from the same root issues. So to give you a few examples in my fifth chapter, I talk about nomadic peoples and alternative conceptions of space. And I I wanted to have a whole chapter about nomadic peoples because they are often really lumped into a lot of other categories. But I think that they're very important um, for a variety of reasons, but particularly because um, it requires us to think more about uh, state territory and borders. So you can have nomadic peoples whose traditional territories that they use for all sorts of reasons, their land might go across the the borders of two or three different countries, right? And again, if we go back 100 years or 50 years, you could cross those borders freely, it didn't matter. Now things are different with the securitization of borders. Um, But so a lot of these groups have basically had their, their lands grabbed away because states have decided that they were not properly using the land, right? They would say, our idea of proper land use is, say, farming or building industry, and you haven't done any of these things. You're using them for grazing or for spiritual purposes or whatever that might be. Because we don't believe that you're using these lands for proper use, we're going to just take it and we're going to do what we want to do with it. And of so, we're, yeah, of course, right? That's very convenient. And so, so putting these kind of cultural definitions of what territory is, what property is, what proper use is, is a way of stripping people of their of their nationhood, of their of their recognition, and really um, putting people in a very difficult position because they're not. Their territory and their usually identity doesn't fit into one particular nation state in the Westphalian sense. So what do we do with these people if we're relying so heavily on this very state centric kind of UN focused definition of rights and duty bearers? Nomadic peoples just don't fit into that equation. We don't know what to do with them. We don't know where to place them. We don't know where to categorize them. And they're just kind of left out of that conversation, Um, which is a problem if we go back to that idea that human rights are universal and inalienable by virtue of being human. And so, so yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, Chapter six, I talk about indigenous nations and tribal sovereignty, which is uh, something that I'm hoping to continue in future work. Uh, But again, talking about folks who uh, whose primary national affiliation is to an indigenous group rather than a, a state. Sometimes people have multiple national affiliations, right? You can be onondaga and be American. It doesn't, it's not like you have to pick one or the other. Um, but I think that right now we have this real problem where we talk about indigenous sovereignty, but the assumption is always um, you're only sovereign if the the settler state recognizes that sovereignty and you can only use that sovereignty as much as the, the settler state is willing to allow you to do so. And this, this is a problem. Um, luckily there's a lot of just incredible, incredible work being done by indigenous scholars and activists right now. I think this is really exciting time um, for indigenous sovereignty and kind of retaking those claims to nationhood. But it's, it's, it's definitely um, an issue in flux, so to speak and then i think i'll i'll talk about the last the last case which brings it home i mean literally for me I have a chapter about second-class citizens in the land of the free, which is the United States. And here I am talking about people who are certainly not stateless um, in the legal uh, sense of the word. They're American citizens. They're living in one of the wealthiest and most politically powerful countries in the history of humankind. And yet we know that certain certain American citizens are less able to advocate for and enjoy their human rights than others. And so I talk about the cities of Detroit and Flint, Michigan, and also the city of St. Louis. I grew up in Michigan and I live in St. Louis now. And unfortunately, my hometowns uh, have the dubious honors of being places where human rights are routinely violated, especially in communities of color. So talking about things like police brutality in Ferguson, talking about things like the Flint water crisis, talking about things like lack of basic services and, and, and decent public education in Detroit. These are all ways that we can think about um, uh, whose claims on rights are respected more, prioritized more. By our government than others. And I think that's an important conversation to have. I'm a human rights researcher, but I'm also a human rights educator. And and I often um, have conversations with students and and community members where people assume that human rights violations are things that happen in faraway places. And, um, you know, uh, lack of functioning citizenship is something that happens far away. And that's not the case. This is a global issue. um, And it is... um, Unfortunately, playing out in communities all around. Us.
2: and And again, I thought that the this section of the book made perfect sense. Um, so it 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 is the evolution of your thesis and your research. Um, and finally, the the last part um, where you try to help us towards perhaps some solutions <laughs> to these very problematic, concepts and to the the sort of dislocation of many human beings across the globe. So could you talk a little bit about this final section of the book?
0: Sure. Well, I wish I could tell you in, in very certain terms that I had answers to all of these questions and I knew how to fix it. I would very much be looking forward to my Nobel Peace Prize if of that course. Way. But I think we've got some work to do. But I I break my solutions down into two different chapters. I think there's a, there are a lot of approaches that are required here. And it's, again, it's, it's long-term planning. It's deep work. It's not something that's going to be able to be accomplished in an election cycle, for example. Um, But in chapter eight, I talk about problem and representing personhood. And so here I'm really returning to my earlier work and updating that work when it comes to things like issue emergence How do we decide what we're going to focus our attention on? How do we frame issues? How do we talk about Issues. What words do we use? What images do we use? What stories do we tell? And I think that, luckily, there are a lot more people kind of thinking about this. Uh, I, I I know there are a lot of great scholars working on the representation of refugees, for example, because there's so much in the media, and unfortunately with a lot of NGOs, there's, there's so much messaging out there that these are people who you know, have no rights. They have no voice. They're completely invisible. Uh, they're just totally disempowered. And again, that's not true of any person. Everyone uh, is their best um, expert when it comes to the things that they really need. Um, and so it's not that people don't have any sort of um, voice. It's that uh, those voices are often silenced um, and disregarded for all sorts of reasons. So in chapter eight, I talk about issue emergence. I talk about kind of how some of this messaging is is changing and yet sometimes staying the same. So for example, with statelessness, we are starting to see some um, positive outcomes. We're starting to see what I'm calling partial issue emergence in a forthcoming article that should be out any day in the Journal of Human Rights Practice about how at least within elite circles, And, um, you know, people within the UN system, statelessness is no longer hidden. People know what statelessness is. I can't say that's the same if you were to read mainstream newspaper articles or stop someone in the street and ask them what statelessness was the way people would know what a refugee or a child soldier is. But we're getting somewhere. And I think that's really important. Um, But I think at the same time, the stories we tell matter immensely. So, you know, I I spoke earlier about why um, using words like emergency or crisis can be problematic. But also if we look at things like... uh, protests by indigenous peoples. Um, I'm thinking of things like Standing Rock. And we also can look at the Ferguson protests and the rise of Black Lives Matter. These are two groups that have often been talked about in the media as terrorists, right? Um, Terrorists because they might be in the, in the case of water protectors, they might be sabotaging equipment or they might be occupying territory that many of them would claim is their land to begin with. Um, you know, in, in places like Ferguson, terrorism, because people might be um, breaking windows or um, not returning to their homes or, or throwing throwing rocks at police. And so uh, this, this use of terminology, I think, is really problematic where we have social movement activists that are being portrayed in ways that basically posit them as enemies of the state and threats to national security, if they are in fact um, advocating for their fundamental rights as guaranteed under international human rights law. So paying attention to that is very important and hopefully changing those narratives is very important. Uh, And lastly, in chapter nine, I take on the, the task of actualizing the ideal of functioning citizenship. And of course, I think for most scholars working on human rights issues, it's one of those points where you realize that you may have created more questions for yourself than answers. Uh, luckily, there's, there's still time. Uh, so in this chapter, I, I do offer some practical recommendations and say, listen, there are some ways to make things better. Um, and, and, you know, there's all sorts of things. So in statelessness, for example, having universal birth registration is incredibly important. No baby should be born without having some sort of birth certificate to prove that they exist. It sounds like a very simple idea, a very obvious one, but a lot of people were never able to access that. And so when you grow up and you want to you know, go somewhere else as a refugee or as an immigrant, if you want to go to school, if you want to get married... There are a lot of people that do not legally exist on paper, and that affects the rest of your life. So there are a lot of things that can be done and are being done around the world in these very practical terms. Um, But I think bigger than that, we need to understand that these practical recommendations are a step in the right direction, but they will never be enough. Um, For us to really get at the root cause of these issues, to really tackle this problem of functioning, lack of functioning citizenship and hierarchies of personhood, we have to think very critically about the modern human rights regime and how we go about recognizing claimants of rights. Uh, that's heavy lifting, certainly. Um, but I think we have to have these conversations because, again, we're talking about things like nations and citizenship as if we all agree what these things mean and we can move forward with the conversation. Uh, if anything, my book is a is a plea to hey, hey, let's back up um, and unpack this and maybe problematize some of the foundations that we take for granted.
2: And I think you know you you do lay that out in terms of. Look, the the Declaration of Human Rights, conceptually is is very positive, but what it did structurally is really difficult as we sort of unpack it, as you say, and and how and where are individuals left out or pushed out, um, just because of the way it's dependent on you know traditional nation states. Um, And I, I found that really interesting to think about. And also, as you note, well, we have a bigger problem, <laughs> I think. We um, do. <laughs> <laughs> and so you said you sort of slipped in there a little bit with one of the previous chapters that I'm working on some of this now. So my question to you, what is your next project after this really fascinating and somewhat um, disturbing analysis. <laughs> what are you working on now? Hey, for a human rights researcher,
0: that's par for the course, right? I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so there's a lot going on. Which, again, you know, the state—it's not a good indicator of the state of the world when human rights researchers are this busy. Uh, but there's a lot to talk about, and a lot of, I think, incredible work being done to try to resolve a lot of these very disturbing problems. So. Um, One thing I I am doing, another big project that I'm taking on, is I really want to delve deeper into Indigenous sovereignty and uh, a continuing cycle of genocide. So a few years ago, I wrote an article in the Journal of Human Rights that talked about cultural genocide. It's not recognized under international law, but basically, my argument was that even though physical genocide of indigenous peoples has ended in North America, we still have a variety of policies and practices that are eroding and, and seeking to destroy indigenous cultures. So, for example, um, policy is affecting hunting and fishing rights or U.S. federal government policies on how to recognize people, groups as indigenous or not. So that was an article that, that really helped me formulate the chapter in this book. And I want to really take on this issue of, of, of how a lot of these policies are still doing immense harm. So looking, for example, at settler state definitions of Land use, as I mentioned earlier, but also things like citizenship and nationhood sovereignty and how by by really relying on those definitions rather than indigenous ones, um, we are. I think often very intentionally our government has been setting up a system that is um, meant to ultimately destroy indigenous cultures and to break those nations down. Um, I am a non-native person myself. And so I should say I am I am very interested in the work of native scholars. There's a lot of incredible things happening right now. Um, So I'm trying to pay very close attention uh, to those perspectives and those communities and just think about how my work um, can support indigenous nations as much as possible in their their work. I'm also doing a lot of work right now in Italy, which seems like a very different shift. But as I mentioned in my book, I am Italian-American. I'm a dual national. So very ironic for somebody who who researches statelessness as much as I do to have the privilege of two two citizenships. Um, But I'm doing work in the Mediterranean region on forced displacement there, as well as here in the U.S. with resettled refugee populations And in particular, I'm very interested in how these rising anti-migrant, anti-refugee sentiments and, um, you know, all the political challenges that are are leading from those, how that is affecting how people access information and how they are able to make strategic decisions along the journey and then later um, in resettlement, wherever they might end up. So... There's other stuff going on because there's a lot right now. And again, I do think I do think that these things are all related. I think that having these conversations where we don't um, silo our work, where we don't categorize things as, OK, this is refugee scholarship and this is statelessness and this is that. I think it is important to have these conversations that span different geographical areas, different groups of people, even different human rights issue areas. I think that's very important because I think we're facing a lot of the same challenges. And um, I think some of these uh, collaborative projects will be very useful in the future.
2: So when you finish one or the other of these books, which I assume they will also be books, will you come on the New Books Network and talk about them? I think so, if you will have me. I'd be happy to have you on again. Um, So this is Lindsay Kingston, and her book is Fully Human, Personhood, Citizenship, and Rights, published in 2019, just came out from Oxford University Press. This is a really fascinating and incredibly well-written book. Um, Where can somebody get a hold of this, Lindsay?
0: Yeah, so you can, of course, get it on Amazon. I think everything is on Amazon now. But of course, it's also available from the OUP website.
2: Okay, so direct your attention to Oxford University Press's website if you'd like a copy. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you.